Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined once again by Faraz Mohammadi. Faraz, welcome to The Just Pod. Thank you for having me, Emily. As a reminder, Faraz is a federal prosecutor for the Central District of California and is currently one of our diversity and inclusion fellows with the criminal justice section. So Faraz is joining us again today to talk about the subject of criminalizing conversion therapy in the United States. So. Faraz, if you would begin by defining conversion therapy for our listeners, and then also just giving us an understanding of the current prevalence of this practice in the United States. Of course, Emily. And before I get started, I just want to provide a, a quick disclaimer that any opinions or viewpoints I share during the podcast are my personal views. They don't necessarily reflect the position of the Department of Justice or the U.S. Attorney's Office. With that out of the way, in terms of defining conversion therapy, medical associations have essentially narrowed the definition to this notion of interventions that seek or attempt to alter an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity with the aim being to promote heterosexuality or assist gender identity. Now, conversion therapy has you know, been around for decades and has taken on many different forms. Earlier on, there was essentially kind of a physical dimension to it. And this type of therapy is still, you know, still occurs in the United States and is more prevalent around the world, but something known as aversion treatment, this idea of inflicting physical harm to an individual whether that be inducing nausea, vomiting, applying electrical shocks, or you know, snapping a plastic or physical band on the person, for them to then associate that pain or that harm with their homosexuality or gender identity with homoerotic images, essentially for them to associate the pain with being gay or being LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. More commonly today, conversion therapy is taken on the form of what's called talk therapy. And like aversion therapy, it's based on this false premise that being LGBT is something that is reversible, that can be cured, essentially illness that needs to be addressed. And if only these individuals were to follow the instructions of certain people in talk therapy, that they can be cured. And talk therapy, again, takes on many different forms. It ranges from religious leaders or spiritual advisors essentially condemning individuals, telling them that being LGBT is a sin, that they'll go to hell and they need to just engage in constant prayer to, quote, you know, pray the gay away. And again, it goes to as far as mental licensed mental health professionals engaging in what they call treatment and specific instructions that they provide to individuals of how not to be gay or how to reverse being LGBT. And those instructions range from telling young men to limit the amount of time they spend with female influences in their life, such as their mothers or their sisters, 
telling individuals to attempt to engage in sexual intimacy with people of the opposite sex, and if needed, to take drugs to help them do so. Having people stand in front of a mirror and you know, hurl homophobic slurs at themselves, even so far as to have people relive or reenact instances of past sexual abuse that they had in their life so that they associate that past sexual abuse with the idea that they are LGBT. Now, there is consensus in the medical community that this type of conduct or, you know, quote unquote therapy is not only ineffective, that, you know, being LGBT is not something that's reversible or that can be cured, but in fact, it is incredibly harmful, particularly to minors and youth who are subjected to it. I mean, studies have shown that young people who have been subjected to conversion therapy have experienced over the course of their life increased self-hatred, substance abuse, depression, problems with emotional intimacy, and going so far as to committing suicide. In fact, there are studies that show that LGBT youth who are subjected to conversion therapy are at a substantially increased risk of attempting or actually committing suicide at some point in their lives. Emily, you also asked about the prevalence of the practice in the United States. A study put out by the Williams Institute in 2019, I believe, and the Williams Institute is the, the most prominent LGBT think tank in the United States, estimated that somewhere around 700,000 LGBT adults in the United States had been subject to conversion therapy practices at some point in their life. And in fact, about nearly half of them had experienced it when they were a minor. So this conduct is still very much occurring in the United States and even more so across the world. Well, thank you, Paraz, for that background. You know, I think that there are some of us that assume that these practices have been eradicated over time or, mm-hmm. you know, would, we know that there are some states that have taken action against this. And so it's important for us to understand how prevalent it is. So thank you for taking the time to share that with all of us. What I'd like to know next is what the current state of legislation is in banning conversion therapy in the United States. So currently there are about 20 states in the country that have banned at least in some form, conversion therapy in their states. And predominantly those bans have taken the form of preventing licensed mental health professionals or just health professionals generally from engaging in the provision of conversion therapy services in the state. Now, to be clear, those bans are not criminal bans, but rather take the form of the, you know, violators are essentially have their licenses revoked or subject to some kind of financial penalties. Certain states, about three states, I believe Connecticut, Illinois, and New Hampshire also have deemed the provision of conversion therapy services as unfair business practices, essentially making it unlawful to advertise or provide those services in exchange for some kind of financial compensation. Now, there is currently no federal law with respect to conversion therapy. In 2019, two bills were introduced in Congress, the first being the Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act, which sought to make it unlawful for businesses or entities to advertise or provide conversion therapy in exchange for compensation, again, to deem them on a federal level as an unfair business practice. 
and another bill by the name of the Prohibition of Medicaid Funding for Conversion Therapy Act, which would have prohibited Medicaid from paying out essentially bills from service providers for the provision of conversion therapy. Now, neither of those bills made it out of committee. They weren't put to a vote by the entire Congress. So as of now, there is no federal law with respect to conversion therapy. So if I could ask a follow-up in that, you know, you spoke to physical forms of conversion therapy, and it makes me wonder if they're, especially if any of that is being performed on a minor, I'm just wondering, are there statutes that while it's not specific to conversion therapy necessarily, are there torture statutes for minors that prosecutors are able to prosecute that form of conversion therapy? Is that something that happens currently to try and protect minors from this practice? There is. And, you know, essentially once you bring a physical component to it, there are more laws that can be accessed to protect minors from that kind of harm. And I think it's clear to distinguish what the conversion therapy that's based on speech versus those that inflict physical pain. There's a clearer divide there. And so that's why I think you're seeing less and less of the actual conversion therapy in the form of aversion therapy, at least in the United States because there are more protections to minors outside of the you know, conversion therapy context to protect them. The bigger issue becomes, how do you address the more prevalent talk therapy of conversion therapy, which in a lot of ways is just as harmful on a mental level, on an emotional long-term level for these youth as aversion therapy was when it was applied earlier on. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of debate going on in the United States about whether conversion therapy in the form of talk therapy, is that really just the form of speech that's subject to protections, you know, such as the First Amendment, or is it a form of treatment that's being provided with specific aims of altering a person's behavior that should kind of come out of the complete protections of the First Amendment and be regulated as a form of conduct or treatment, just as other forms of medical treatment are subject to regulation in the United States. And I think that's kind of the tension and the the debate that's going on in the country right now. Yeah, so let's dig into that a little bit more with First Amendment concerns and how there'd be a path to, you know, legislation that criminalizes this talk therapy that you're speaking to. Just if you could elaborate more on the specifics of that debate and, like I said, what a path would be for this legislation. So when the first states started to pass their, you know, anti-conversion therapy statutes, their conversion therapy bans, as you can imagine, there was some opponents to those bans and they brought First Amendment challenges to them essentially arguing that the bans infringed on individuals' free exercise of religion and their right to free speech. And so two states in particular had their bans elevated to the Court of Appeals. The ban in California was challenged and it went to the Ninth Circuit. And the ban, I believe, New Jersey was also challenged. That went to the Third Circuit. Now, both of those Court of Appeals actually upheld the bans. Again, the regulations in those states were narrowed. They were focused to the provision of conversion therapy 
by licensed mental health professionals to minors. And so the courts held there that the conduct that was being regulated, the kind of the item that was being regulated was more akin to conduct than speech. It was essentially treatment and the regulations were regulating that treatment and it had an incidental effect on speech because that treatment was just relayed or transmitted through the form of talk therapy or speech. Now, more recently, the last year, the 11th circuit held the opposite. They were addressing a local ordinance in Florida that essentially banned the same conduct, provision of conversion therapy by a mental health professional to minors. And it held that, no, this isn't more akin to regulating conduct, but actually regulating viewpoint expression, the expression of these mental health professionals. And it's an unconstitutional infringement on speech there. Now, there is this split among circuits, but I think what's promising for a path to a federal law is that the Ninth Circuit and the Third Circuit holdings were appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court denied cert, meaning that those rulings still hold. So there is essentially a court of appeal ruling saying that bans on mental health professionals providing conversion therapy to minors are constitutional And that does provide kind of a motivation or incentive to say that a federal law could also survive kind of this constitutional analysis. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, the federal statute would then need to be focused on mental health providers. Is that what you're saying? That would be the the safest path. But I think it's kind of there's a balance to the amount of risk and reward you'd want to take with a federal law. So the reality is, is that a large percentage, in fact, if not the majority of conversion therapy services provided today are not being provided by licensed mental health professionals. It's being provided by unlicensed counselors, spiritual advisors, and, you know, in a lot of cases, religious officials. And so I think there's different levels that a federal law could take. The safest path would be kind of to follow the standard that you've seen in these states, a regulation on licensed mental health professionals who are subjecting children to conversion therapy practices. But you can also expand it. The Therapeutic Fraud Prevention Act, which was introduced, would go one step further by deeming conversion therapy provision an unfair business practice. You'll also be targeting these institutions or camps that essentially advertise and charge parents to send their children with the promise that they can turn their children straight or reverse their belief that they're LGBT. By deeming these as unfair business practices, you can then target and prosecute any entity that's essentially charging money to provide conversion therapy. And that, you know, would affect even a larger portion of the conversion therapy infrastructure or network. Now, the most effective federal law would be essentially just criminalizing the practice of conversion therapy outright, regardless of who's providing it, regardless of if they're receiving any kind of financial compensation in return. And that would then reach your unlicensed counselors, your spiritual advisors, anyone that is essentially aiming to change an individual or minor's sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, that kind of expansive law would obviously be most vulnerable to constitutional attacks. Now you're going into the realm of religious liberty, free exercise of religion, in addition to kind of free speech that goes beyond just what's classically defined as treatment in a medical context. 
But I think even then, a federal law that is narrowly tailored, that very specifically defines conversion therapy as in specific instruction, not just viewpoint, but instruction of how someone can change. If they were to take these steps, they can change from being LGBT to heterosexual or cisgender. You know, that could potentially survive constitutional scrutiny, regardless of who's providing it, because there's a difference from a religious official saying, this is what our religious text says about being gay or being transgender versus, well, these are the steps you need to take. You need to have sexual intimacy with someone of the opposite gender. You need to take these drugs. You need to avoid contact with these people. At that point, that kind of specific guidance and instruction should not be afforded the protections of the First Amendment. So even at that broadest scope, while by no means will be easy and it will face many uphill challenges, there are ways, given the current state of the law, for even that type of federal statute to survive constitutional muster. Thank you for making those clarifications and distinctions for our listeners, as it is a nuanced path that Mm -hmm. you're talking about here, and the language will be very important, sounds like. So making those distinctions is critical, sounds like, to the path Mm -hmm. forward. So thank you. What I'd also like to know is, as you mentioned earlier, if there are 20 states with current bans and, you know, there's other existing local bans for more localized jurisdictions and potentially more legislation or criminal sanctions being put in place on a state or local level, or, you know, some of these broader protections that we were speaking to, then what value would a federal statute hold for these youth? So I think you hit the nail on the head, Emily, with the number 20. So even though the the medical consensus is clear that conversion therapy is not only ineffective, but harmful, particularly to minors, less than half the states in the country have a statewide ban on the practice, even in the narrow realm of regulating medical mental health professionals. And I think you can imagine that the state's that don't have such a ban are those in which the practice is most prevalent. And so I think a federal law would essentially make this a countrywide issue and say, you know, it doesn't matter what state you live in, subjecting a child in, you know, Kentucky is just as susceptible to the harmful effects of conversion therapy as one in California. And so there needs to be a consistent nationwide ban on this practice even if just focused on mental health professionals. But again, a federal law also has the possibility of going beyond just regulations of mental health professionals. Like I mentioned, the fraud statute that was introduced would affect any organization that seeks to profit from advertising or providing conversion therapy. But also a federal law, I think, would set an agenda for local prosecuting agencies as well. So there currently are laws on the books that prosecutors could use to, at least for for for-profit entities, to go prosecute and investigate that conduct. So your federal mail and wire fraud statutes essentially criminalize fraud. And so an institution that is essentially providing or promising to convert a gay child to be straight depending on the evidence that's available, that could potentially be prosecuted under the existing fraud statutes. Now, a federal law that says that the provision of conversion therapy is an unfair business practice 
would make it clear on a federal level and at least the federal prosecuting agencies that this practice should be something that should be on your radar. And now you can not only use the federal fraud statute, but also existing mail and wire fraud and potentially even healthcare fraud statutes to prosecute them in states that don't necessarily have a state ban. So there are many benefits aside from just a nationwide kind of consistent infrastructure for banning the practice and having various federal statutes. Okay, thank you for that. So we've covered a lot of ground here. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners on this topic before we close? Yeah, I think, Emily, it's important. I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of the importance of these laws for deterring or curbing conversion therapy in the country. But beyond just the deterrent effect, and of course, holding those accountable that continue to engage in the conduct. But I think beyond that, these laws would have a tremendous symbolic impact in the country. For better or for worse, the conversion therapy infrastructure system that exists, at least with respect to to young children and minors, is propped up in a lot of ways by parents who subject their children to this type of quote unquote treatment. And, you know, in a lot of cases, these parents, you know, I believe are doing what they think is in the best interest of their children. But unfortunately, their beliefs are, are driven or motivated in large part by societal misconceptions and frankly, misinformation. These misconceptions that Being LGBT is something to be ashamed of and hidden, that frankly, it is an illness that can be cured or reversed. And when you're motivated or kind of influenced by this type of misinformation, taking the step to say, well, subjecting my child to this conduct, regardless of if it's potentially harmful now, is the best thing for their long-term health. And that couldn't be furthest from the truth. So hopefully discussions of federal laws or just conversion therapy generally will send a message and resonate with parents that this kind of treatment is incredibly harmful to your children. And the best thing you can do for your child if they are LGBT is to show them unconditional love and support. And if that message resonates enough, hopefully the conversion therapy infrastructure in the United States, at least with respect to minors, will collapse and there won't be as much of a need for these types of laws to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it certainly begins with awareness. So thank you for us for taking the time to have this discussion with us on our podcast and to walk through all this current data and current legislation with us so that we can all have an understanding of where we're at and what the path forward is. So thank you again for us for joining us. Thank you for having me, Emily. And again, listeners, this is Faraz Mohammadi, Assistant United States Attorney for the Central District of California. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.